We just sing, turn my strivings into works of grace. Breath of God, show Christ in all I do. And so there is only one way that that prayer is possible, that Christ can be seen in all that I do. And that is through the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. He empowers us to do this. And that's what we'll talk about tonight. I'll read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest, most famous, well-known Baptists in church history. He said, the great need of the church at all times is the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that? That that is the great need of the church, the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we can assent to that with our, our minds, our intellects, that we know that that is what we need. But do we agree with that with our actions and with our desires? Do we truly feel the great need that we have for the Holy Spirit? That's something that needs to be ever before us and, and is always convicting because it is so easy to try to do things on our own strength and our own works. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to look at tonight is who is the Holy Spirit? How can we understand this person of the Holy Spirit and how does that affect us as believers? I think um, the Holy Spirit is one of those topics in Christian theology that is, is kind of silent um, because of in, our, in our day, there are lots of errors in regards to the Holy Spirit. And so we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. Um, thankfully, that is, is beginning to change. There are beginning to be good works, so once again, um, written on the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but he's kind of been the forgotten person of the Trinity for, for many um, decades and generations even. Um, and so we don't want to do that because the Holy Spirit is very important. And so we're going to flow right with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Um, so if you've got that in front of you, the little sheet of paper, I'm just going to be going line by line. Um, it's a great explanation of this. And uh, some of you may be wondering again, uh, why are we spending so much time on this uh, confession, on this statement of faith? Why, are we, why aren't we just preaching the Bible? Um, and we do preach the Bible, and that is first and foremost. But I've seen a great graphic, and I should have made a slide if I were, was thinking, um, describing the purpose of the creeds and the confessions in the church. It's a picture of the Bible open like this. And then it has um, all these arrows shooting out of the Bible. Um, and all these arrows, some are going way off this way, some are going here, some are going up. There's this huge spread of arrows, and which has meaning that those are the, the interpretations of the Bible, the, the teachings from the Bible, that they're all over the place. And so what the creeds and the confessions do is they put up walls, if you will, and they put up walls. So now the arrows are all playing within this confines of the creeds and the confessions. And so they, they help restrain us and keep us from wandering off into our own traditions because we should always be reforming back to what the scriptures say. And so that's why we have to write this stuff down because our temptation as human beings is to the, the way uh, diverge off the teaching of the Bible. And we're constantly going to have to reform our thoughts and our hearts back to um, the scriptures. And so the, the creeds and confessions do that for us. It, it summarizes it. Another great illustration is from Matt Chandler. Um, he did a sermon series through uh, the Apostles' Creed, and he was getting the same sort of feedback. Why are you preaching on a creed? Why aren't you just preaching the Bible? And his great illustration is that the, the creeds and confessions are like the moon. There's no inherent light. There's no inherent glory in the moon. All the moon does is reflect the light of the sun. 
And so the creeds and confessions reflect the light. They reflect the teaching and the glory of what is in the scriptures. And so that is why we're doing this. It puts it into bite-sized pieces that we can comprehend, takes the whole teaching of the Bible and condenses it into these little categories that we can understand. And so what does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? The whole teaching of the Bible is written down for us here in the Baptist Faith and Message. First sentence, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God fully divine. So what we see is that the Holy Spirit is a fully divine person. When we hear Spirit, we may think in similarities of the dichotomy of man that we talked about a while back. So human beings, we have bodies and spirits, right? And my spirit is a part of me. You know, I have my body and my spirit is a part of me. Um, but that's not what we're saying about God. It's not like the Holy Spirit is Jesus's spirit or, or God's spirit and the body is Jesus. It's not that. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person, a separate um, person from the other members of the Trinity. So it's not like the body-spirit relationship that humans have. The Holy Spirit of God is a person within the Godhead, fully divine. One of the big uh, misunderstandings of this is we think of the Holy Spirit sometimes as an impersonal force. In fact, a couple of years ago, LifeWay did a research um, poll where they are asking um, professing evangelicals um, what they believe, if true or false. The Holy Spirit is uh, not a personal being, but is a force. And a great, a great percentage um, agreed that the Holy Spirit is simply an impersonal force. I don't know. I'm not a star. I'm, not, I'm probably one of the 2% of the country who hasn't like seen the Star Wars movies. Um, so I, all I know is the force is with you. Um, but you're with me back there. You're not a Star Wars person. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Um, but so it's not like that. It's not like some sort of mystical thing. It's a person. It's a relational, personal God is what, what the Holy Spirit is. And so that is who he is. Joby did a good job talking about the Trinity. They're all united together and all these things. So we're not going to spend time on that. But what we do when we look at the, the, the Trinity, there's what, what we call the ontological Trinity. So ontology is the study of being. So what it means to exist, ontology. They have the ontological Trinity is God. What it means to be God, the works, they're all equal in power and glory and worthy, worthiness to be worshipped and all these things. And then we have what's known as the economic trinity. And that's the way of looking at their works. So when you think of economic, think of jobs. So jobs create an economy. So what is the economy of God? How does God work? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the economic trinity. And some of the errors that you may find is when you start blending those two. In, in the works of God, the Son submits to the Father. Well, that must be that the Son is less than the Father because he submits to him. No, you're mixing it up. In the ontological trinity, they are equal in glory and power. Uh, there's no subordination there. But in the economic trinity, when they work, the Son submits to the will of the Father. And we'll look at that some more here when we talk about the Spirit. So what did the Spirit do? And what does he do in this onto, um, ec- economic trinity? One of the things he's done here is he's inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. So the Bibles that we hold in our hands, uh, that we see before us, these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe what's called verbal plenary inspiration, that the very words of scripture are inspired by God. Um, The Holy Spirit has moved these particular men who God appointed at certain times and in certain ways to write. Um, and, And the cool thing about this is it's not like God, the Holy Spirit was in Paul's ear saying, you know, like a, like a robot, write this, write this, write this. And, and Paul was just dictating it. What the Holy Spirit does is he works in the lives and in the personality and in the education and in the circumstances of all these men. And, and, and through his providence, he inspires what we have in the scriptures as the very word of God. It's a very beautiful um, scenario. It, it's not like a rote um, dic- diction, as we see, like the 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 the, um, the Muslims believe that Muhammad just received the Quran, um, just and he just wrote it down, just as he heard it. But we have a beautiful unpacking um, throughout many, many, many years um, of one story, because it's the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring all of it. So when we look at what Moses wrote, you know, thousands, thousands of years before um, Paul and Peter and and Matthew and the guys in the New Testament. Um, different people, different time, different uh, subject matter. But when you look at it together, it's all one story. It's all pointed to redemption, God's plan of redemption. And it's because it's inspired by the same Holy Spirit, the eternal God who doesn't change. Jesus understood this. And we get this teaching from Jesus where some people would say that Jesus didn't believe that the Old Testament was uh, the word of God, inspired word of God, some uh, new uh, skeptics would say. And Jesus himself says this in Matthew 22, 31 through 32. He says, have you not read, and he's referencing something that Moses wrote, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living and so what Jesus is saying in this little uh, debate he's having with the Sadducees is he's quoting a book of Moses that Moses wrote. And he says, have you not read what was said to you by God? So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament as the word of God with the same authority that God was speaking to these. So the Holy Spirit inspired holy men of old to write the scriptures. So not only does he inspire the writing of the scriptures, but he helps us in the interpretation of the scriptures as well. And that's the next sentence. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. So the doctrine of illumination is this uh, teaching that the Holy Spirit shines a light, if you will, onto the text of scripture. When we're reading and studying scripture, the Holy Spirit gives light to our eyes. He helps us to understand it. He helps us to see the true meaning of it. We see this unpacked for us a little bit in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. It says, the natural person, meaning the unregenerate person, person who isn't born again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's pretty cool. 
that we have the mind of Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through his illumination, we have the mind of Christ. And who do you think could understand the scriptures? Jesus, he's the content of the scriptures. And we have the mind of Christ thanks to the illuminating work of the Holy Holy, uh, Scriptures. Uh, the Spirit. So when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading the Bible for yourself, are you praying? Are you asking the Spirit to, to show you, to, and to help you understand this, to illuminate this passage for me? Um, are you doing that? If not, make it a practice to sit down. Um, it's so easy just to, to think that we can sit here and just study this and, and look at how the sentences relate to one another and, and, and come to understanding. But we need power. We need the, the author of Scripture if we have the author there to interpret it for us, we would be foolish uh, not to ask for his help. In Psalm 119, 18, it says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Like that should be all of our prayers before we open the Bible. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so when we say this, that the Holy Spirit enables men to understand truth, What we're not saying is that the unregenerate, so your unbelievers, we're not saying that they can't understand anything. We're not saying that they're like walking down the street, just like running into things because they can't read signs and and stuff. We're not saying that that's the case. What we're talking about is that they can't understand spiritual truths, uh, truths that relates to the relationship to God. Um, It's foolishness to them. Even if they can understand the connections and the logical connections, it's just dumb. It's foolish. It makes no sense to them. I was explaining the gospel to a a friend of mine um, several months ago. And man, I, was, I, was, I thought I was killing it. You know, I was unpacking the, the, the doctrine of you know, substitutionary atonement and just how beautiful it was. My heart was like, man, this is so amazing. And his response was, hmm, that's neat. And I was like, man, I was just ready to baptize you right now. You know? and, it, and we need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, we have hope in that work. And we'll look at that in a little bit. So they can't understand spiritual truth. Now, if you want to press this further, the unbeliever has no consistent basis for truth. If they want to live in their worldview that denies the existence of a God, they have no basis for truth. So that they're inconsistent in believing truth and saying that things are true, but they have nowhere to ground it in when they deny the existence of God. So that's like denying the existence of the sun and then saying that there's light everywhere. It's like, nah, you can't do that. You just said that there's no sun. They cannot be consistent in their arguments. And so when you're talking to unbelievers, maybe you can point that out to them. If they say something like, well, there's no such thing as truth. Ask them this, is that true? If it's not true, then I don't, there's no such thing as truth. And what you just said is not true. There's no, there's no truth. So it exposes the inconsistency in their worldview. A lot of times unbelievers want to hop into our worldview as believers, uh, steal from us to argue against us. Um, but they just have no way to do that consistently. And what the Holy Spirit does when he brings alive the word of God to us is he, he, he shows us, exposes us our inconsistency and our foolishness. And um, through his work of drawing men to, to God, um, he convinces us and leads us to repentance. And that's where we go next. He exalts Christ. I want to come back to that later because I think it will flow better after the next sentence. Because these, these two sentences here, he exalts Christ. He convicts men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He calls men to the Savior and affects regeneration. All this is essentially John chapter 16, 
summarize. So what I want us to do is, is read together John chapter 16. This is at the, towards the end of uh, Jesus's time with his disciples, and he's telling them that he's going to leave them and that he's going to be sending the helper, the Holy Spirit to them. Here's what he tells them. Nevertheless, starting in verse 7, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go to away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so we see right here that, that, that sentence of he convicts men of sin, of righteousness and judgment straight from John 16. But then it continues in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, catch that, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so it's pretty cool. We see the spirit speaking and he's bringing to mind uh, these things to these disciples. And what we were just talking about the scripture, some of these men that were gathered here when Jesus is speaking to that will be the ones who would write parts of the, the New Testament that we're reading here, even, even this account. And so we see the Spirit reminding them and working them in the writing of Scripture, but also now in the illumination of Scripture and exalting Christ in all things. So how um, this Holy Spirit does this work of conversion and regeneration, I believe this is all packed into regeneration. It's hard to, to, to lay it out on a timeline and say, like, this is what happens when someone is being converted. First this happens, and then this happens, and this happens. It's such a tightly uh, woven event in time that we can't really piece it out chronologically. But, but here's what's going on. He convicts man of sin. So what does he does is he pulls back our blinders, our blind spots that we that we, we want to think that we're clean and that we're good. But what he does is he pulls back those blinders and enables us to see how sinful we really are. And then he points to the righteous standard of God. He says, you're unclean. God is clean and holy. He points to that righteous standard, which is convicting. And then he warns of the impending judgment, that there is judgment for that sin. Because God is holy and you are not, he must judge uh, that sin. And then he exalts Christ as the only sufficient savior and gives him a heart of flesh alive and able to repent and believe the gospel. And so do you see how that works? He shows us the law, if you will, how we don't match up to God. And then he lifts up Christ and says, but, but he is a suitable savior. He is sufficient. Run to him come to him. And then not only does he hold him up before our eyes, but he also works regeneration. He, he gives us that heart of flesh that we see prophesied in uh, Ezekiel. He gives us that. He removes the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh that's now beating, 
It's not dead in its trespasses and sins any longer. It's alive and beating, and it's able to repent and, and see with new eyes Jesus. And that now he is beautiful. He's no longer foolish. The message of the cross is no longer foolish or a stumbling block, but now it's beautiful, and I see my need for it. That's because I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Did you know this? 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That the only reason that you can confess with your heart and true belief that Jesus is Lord right now is because of the Holy Spirit and his ministry within your heart and in your life. We should be thankful for that. He shouldn't be the, 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 the third wheel. You know, he shouldn't be uh, the one sitting off in the corner when we're talking about the Father and the Son. No, we should worship and adore and be thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because without him, we couldn't even say Jesus is Lord. And it goes on to say, at the moment of regeneration, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. I believe that this is written in opposition to um, a, a, a statement, a, a view that would say that there is a second later baptism of the Holy Spirit. That when you're born again, you're, you're saved, but then at some point in your life, you'll receive another baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you will receive the Holy Ghost later. And so what they do is they appoint to uh, the New Testament in Acts where people were were saved before Pentecost, and in the Pentecost, the Spirit fell, and they all received the Spirit. And they would say that that's normative and that that is the model for today, and therefore you can be a Christian and not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and not be sealed, um, and that's something that would happen later. And so I believe the reason this is in here is this, we're, we're saying that, no, we, we don't believe that. We don't believe that. We believe that at the moment of regeneration, you are baptized by the Holy Ghost. The moment that you're born again, it, it is that work of being born again that, that baptizes you into the body of Christ, both literally the body of Jesus that we're united to him, we're engrafted to Jesus, but also the, the body of Christ uh, locally as the church. So you become a member of the church, capital C, at the moment of regeneration. And then you join a local church, lowercase c, as an expression of that. So how you actually flesh that out? How do you, how do you obey and how do you serve and love, do the one another's in scripture unless you're united to a local body? But we're, saying, we're not saying that you're, you have to join a local church to be a Christian necessarily, but that you are baptized into the capital C church, the body of Christ and into Christ himself at the moment of regeneration. When you're born again, God says, mine, completely every inch of you. He's not waiting on us to get to a point where we're holy enough to, to have the Holy Spirit indwell us. Um, that he, he says, no, he's mine now. And he's the seal for all believers, not reserved for the special class of Christians any longer. Uh, Kaylin and I, my wife, we were talking about this. Um, we were going through um, a study and we were talking about the fact that um, in, in Hebrews, it talks about in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And now he's spoken to our son. And we we're just talking about how now in Jesus, we're all prophets in the sense that we all have the indwelling of the spirit for ministry. And they didn't have it in the old covenant. And we're trying to understand, you know, how they could be born again without 
the, the, the work of the prophet. And, and you go back to uh, the Old Testament where, where Moses is being overwhelmed with his work as, as the only prophet in town. You know, the people were complaining to him. Uh, he was just, just worn out trying to represent God to all these uh, people. And he just cries out, uh, God, I need help. So God takes a portion of the spirit off of Moses and gives it to, to 70 elders. And they begin to prophesy. And Moses is like, wow, would that all God's men be prophets. And we see now at, at, at Pentecost, when the spirit falls on the church, we see the fulfillment of that, that all of God's people are now prophets. We are or priests to our God, thanks to the work of Jesus and applied to us um, by the spirit. So he's a seal for all believers. He cultivates Christian character, comforts believers and bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. And I tried to jump to this a little bit ago. So, um, but he cultivates Christian character. So the fruit of the spirit, right? We spent all summer talking about his work in this regard. And we're getting back into that um, the last, this past week and week again, where the Holy Spirit is, is developing a Christian character. He's turning us into the likeness of Jesus in us. And I love that in Galatians um, 5, where it talks about um, the works of the flesh are and, and lists it all out. And it says the fruit of the Spirit. And so the, 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 the fruit is something that the Spirit is producing. It's not something that we're necessarily having to, to muster up ourselves. that the Spirit is cultivating us and bringing these fruits, um, these character uh, Christian character attributes, working that in us. So if you're being sanctified, if you're not the angry grouch that you used to be, um, you can thank the Holy Spirit because of that. If you're not, uh, if you're not imprisoned uh, by lust like you once were, you can thank the Holy Spirit for that. He's cultivating a Christian character in you and, and you can trust him to continue that work he comforts believers. We're thankful for that. You know, our Christian life is sorrowful yet always rejoicing it's because we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. At the same moment, we can be sorrowful. We can be mourning by the, the brokenness in the world, but we have the comforter who comes and ministers to us. He, he reminds us of the promises of God. He, have you ever been really just needing a scripture or something from God a certain day and then all of a sudden something pops into your head or you see something? Um, it's the Holy Spirit ministering to you, comforting you. He bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. So believe it or not, every believer has a gift with which to serve the church. So like you could be the, the most talentless person in the world. Like you could be just the worst. And the moment you come a believer, the Holy Spirit gifts you with a skill, something to serve the church. He gives you a gift in which to serve the church as the body, right? And so our job as pastors here and staff here is to help you develop that gift. In Ephesians 4, it says that the work of the pastor is to equip the saints for the ministry. So like the, the pastors aren't the ones who are supposed to be doing the ministry per se. It's, it's the, 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 the congregation we're doing the ministry. The pastors are here to equip you and to develop you. And so um, when, when you're asked to volunteer for a, a, a ministry area, um, don't see that as just filling a spot. You know, you're not just filling a spot so that we can put on a show on Sunday mornings. 
Um, and, and as a leader, I, I have to remind myself of that when I'm trying to schedule people. You know, somebody uh, oftentimes, and I wish there was more of them in the room, but the guys up in that booth, you don't even know they're there until the batteries in my microphone dies. And that was totally my fault. You know, when they do their job, you don't even know they're there. Uh, it's very important. Uh, but oftentimes I can just get wound up. It's like, okay, I got to get someone to fill this hole, fill this hole. And then I remind myself as a leader, no, I'm here to develop leaders, to equip people for ministry. And so when you're, you're serving in the church, you're not just filling a hole. Um, you are, are serving the body and we want to develop you. We want to see you grow in your gifts. You know, if you were that talentless dude and, and the spirit just gave you a gift and it's real young right now, uh, maybe, maybe you've been given a, a gifting to teach and, and you feel like you, you have this gift, but you're just kind of stumbling and you don't know what to do and you, you, you can't lead. Maybe you've got a chance to lead in your community group or something like that and you felt this. Um, come see one of the pastors and staff. We want to see that gift developed and grow into you. And the Holy Spirit will continue to do that work as well. So he's given us all gifts so no one is left out. And it says, he seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. And this is part of that baptism in my mind, when you're, you're baptized. So when, when we see a new believer baptized into the water up here, it, it's saying that, that they're, they're all in, that they're a member, they are us now, that they are here for the long haul. And when we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, it's that, that, that final um, it's that, that down payment on the final pay payment that we know for sure that we are uh, sealed for our inheritance that has come into the final redemption. I love the way this is put in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him, speaking of Jesus here, says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. So check that out. When were you sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? When, when was that? When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It wasn't down the road. It was the moment you believed in him. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. And that word guarantee there is like a down payment. You know, it's the, it's the down payment that you will receive the inheritance. You know, you buy, uh, so we just bought a house a while back and, and we, you know, had to scrape up, had to sell audio gear and sell everything I had to scrape up money for a down payment. Um, and so, but the down payment is promising uh, the bank that I'm gonna make good on this. I'm gonna pay the whole thing. Um, but here is X percent um, down to promise you that I'm going to be good and I'm going to pay the whole thing. Well, the fact that the Spirit dwells in you, when you're born again, when you receive the Holy Spirit, that is God saying to you, I'm going to make good on this promise. I've promised to redeem you. I've promised to, uh, to do all these things for you. You may not see them in fullness now. So we're, we got a long way to go on our mortgage, right? And many of us, we all have a long way to go in our sanctification, in our glorification, right? But God has promised that I'm going to make good on this. And God doesn't default on his loans. He doesn't forget um, to pay his bills. Um, no, he is good. He will fulfill that. And so as sure as we have the spirit, we can be guaranteed that God will uh, deliver us. And that's what it says next. It says his presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's a, that's a good promise. 
It's, I don't know about you. There are seasons when I, I just like, I'm going the wrong direction. It's like I, a couple months ago, I was on fire, man. I was reading my Bible like it was, you know, nothing. I was flipping through those pages, tearing it up. And it was just, and not that I was just reading a lot, but I loved it. Like my heart was just feasting on it. And now it's like, I just don't even think about it anymore. You know, my mind is elsewhere and nice. I'm going backwards. Like I'm supposed to be growing in sanctification and what's happening to me. And we need this promise that God's like, I'm going to make good on this. God is like, I've sealed you. You're mine. You might ramble wrong. You might go over here, but you're mine. And I will uh, bring you into Christ. And, and sometimes what it takes to make us that way um, is not a path we would choose. Sometimes it takes a stiff rod um, for us to, to be like Christ, but he will do what it takes. And it's all to our good. And finally, it says, he enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, and service. So everyday Christianity is in the category of miracle. When you think about your life, do you think about your life in the category of miracle? That you are a miracle. That's what Christianity is. Like we just talked about, it took supernatural intervention to turn us into Christians. We didn't just say, oh, that seems like a good way to live and become Christians. No, God intervened into our life. He broke through and it took a miracle for us to be Christians. And it takes a miracle for us to day to day crucify the desires of our flesh, right? It, it, so it takes a miracle for me to get my butt off the couch and serve my family. <laughs> my wife, I don't think she's here, so she, I didn't hear her say amen. It takes a miracle to do that. And so what we need to be doing is praying for miracles. We need to be asking God to perform that miracle. And he's there to do that. He enlightens and empowers the believer and the church in worship, evangelism, in service. So in worship, are you one of those people that maybe um, struggle to get here on Sunday mornings and struggle to be engaged uh, there's power for you. Maybe you, you should get here and like, God, I'm distracted. <laughs> I can't focus right now. Uh, maybe my kids are scurrying over here. Um, help me to focus or help me to, to redeem the scurrying and, and, and be thankful for how you put up with my scurrying in life. You know, um, maybe, you're, you, maybe you don't feel like you're able to sing. Um, it takes a miracle for some of us to open our mouths and sing, but there's power for that miracle if you would ask for it and trust it that it's there. Evangelism. Most of us are freaked out by the idea of evangelism, of, of just walking up to strangers or to friends, maybe even more so friends, and, and, and talking about the gospel with them, talking about Jesus with them. Um, but there's power to overcome that fear. There's power for that. And there's power to produce the fruit in the evangelism, not just to get you going, but to get them going. So the same Holy Spirit who, who took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, can give that guy that said, hmm, neat, when I talked about the gospel to him, can give him a new heart as well. And so that is my motivation. That is my encouragement. That is the reason I can look back and go, hmm, neat. It's like, yep, um, at, at least it's neat. And I'm gonna come back you know, later and we're gonna talk about it some more. And maybe you'll say, hmm, that's a little more neat. And you never know what the spirit is working, chiseling away at that heart of stone. Um, and just, we just need to be faithful and to do that because there's power for us to be faithful and there's power for them to be faithful if the Lord wills. And then service. 
It's like I said, getting up off the couch is hard. It takes a miracle to do that. <clears throat> Being committed to your local church is, is hard. It takes a miracle to do that. Uh, but there's power to do it. There's power to do it. We just have to be humble enough to admit it and to get, to get low enough to admit it. It can't be beneath us to ask for power. I heard the story, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, that he was basically giving someone a tour around um, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London where he's preaching to, to hundreds, you know, before electricity and, and the church is packed and the queen even snuck into this church to listen to him preach. You know, it was this amazing time and, and somebody was coming in basically getting a tour because he was a celebrity at this point. And he took them down to the basement and showed them, this is where the power is. Because this is where members of the church gather, I think it was like daily, and we're on their knees praying. Daily. He says, this is where the power is in this local church, in this basement, you know, musty old London basement is where the church was on their knees praying. It wasn't in his oratorial skills. It wasn't in the huge building. It was in the power of the church praying. And so there's power for that, and we have it. We just have to be humble enough to get on our knees and ask for it. So that's what we're going to do here for our last 20 minutes or so. We're going to pray together. And what prayer is, is begging of God. It's asking of God to, to, to work and to do um, miracles, to intervene into our lives, to the lives of others. And so may we pray with that sort of posture. Like, um, I'm a fan of well-constructed sentences, um, even though I'm a redneck and that doesn't work all the time. My English teacher would, in high school would laugh her head off if she heard me say that. But I love it. I think it's beautiful for people who have that skill. Um, and so I'm tempted to, to pray that way, to pray as if, if I say something pretty enough, God will answer me. But what, what he's looking for is me to get low enough, me to get low enough. And I have a hard time doing that. And so may we get low because the, as Spurgeon said, the great need of the church at all times is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way we access that is through prayer, getting low before the Lord and just asking in faith, trusting 